Hello, Elizabeth. How Hi. Oh, jeez. <laughs> My microphone fell. <laughs> it never falls. Welcome to the King and Lou Show with Elizabeth King and Lou Imbriano. At the King and Lou, we don't just dole out advice on business, work, and personal development. We sort through it together right along with you. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Lou. Tell me, what's on tap today? Okay, well, one of the main reasons, as you know, that we decided to do this show, rather than throwing all of our effort into our next book, was that we could tackle really timely topics. And as far as I'm concerned, at least, one of the most important things we're facing right now is what amounted to like a mass exodus of women from the workforce. I don't know what the exact numbers are this week, but it's something like almost 3 million American women have left the workforce. Like, we're looking at the percentage of women who work reflecting the numbers we saw in the mid-1980s. That's that's crazy. That's crazy. It's insane. And it's a little frightening, right? So we know for sure that right now there are millions of people who are making decisions about what they're going to be doing next, many of whom are women— And there are some major cultural influences that have informed the choices that women tend to make when they decide to change direction and potentially work from home. Now, let me just say at the outset, this whole episode is not going to be about women. It's ultimately about customers. But to frame that conversation and I just want to highlight how broadly influential this topic is. So I'm going to knit together a few ideas and tell you a little story. So last night, I was watching this documentary on Netflix called Made You Look, which dug into the story of how one of the oldest art galleries in New York was discovered to have sold counterfeit paintings and not, it wasn't just like one or two, this place sold just shy of like $90 million worth of fake art. And in the movie, one of the main stories that storylines that they dive into is whether or not the woman selling the paintings knew that these paintings were inauthentic. And that was not incredibly interesting to me. And if you saw it, no, I don't think she knew. But what did pique my interest was the plausibility of her willful ignorance. So in other words, she really wanted these paintings that she was sourcing out of, I am not kidding, the back of someone's car to be authentic, like Rothko's and Jackson Pollock's that somebody drove up and opened the trunk on. So that's the same kind of blind optimism that you can feel like at the start of a relationship, right? When like, maybe this time it really is the knight in shining armor that has arrived, which he usually hasn't. Anyway, that (laughs) feeling tends to also creep up in business situations too, especially when you're looking at starting something that's like an answer to prayer or could be a dream come true. You know, the woman selling those paintings really wanted it all to be real. Now, Lou, you and I get calls all the time from people who want business advice, right? This week, a friend called me to talk about a business she wants to start, and she was exhibiting what I think might be a version of this. You with me? No, it sounds good. I'm listening. I'm I'm listening intently. (laughs) Okay, good. Thanks. So first of all, I just want to make abundantly clear that when I talk about people on the show, I am never, ever trying to throw anybody under the bus. These are my friends, right? I'm not making fun of anybody, not trying to make anybody look foolish. And also, in this case, I don't even think she's being foolish. I just want to be crystal clear. Um, I think she's thinking along the lines that I think anyone would. 
But I do want to talk with you about what I said to her in this conversation we had, because what I ultimately said to her, honest to God, it's something I've never said to anybody else before. So like so many of us, my friend spends a lot of time in the kitchen. She's always been like a really accomplished cook. But in 2020, she got really into it. Lou, you're a foodie. How much food did we all make this year? Oh, my God, I gained 20 pounds. Right. I think I think that's a very pretty common experience. <laughs> it's not COVID-19. It's the COVID-20. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So my friend has been thinking about leaving her position as a school teacher to start a food business. And she, like me, is not the intuitive entrepreneur type, right? She's not just a natural business person. So while leaving her full-time job is surely the objective here, it's not like she wants to just get into business to do anything. You know, like, I mean, she doesn't want to just like launch an app, right? If that were the other way for her to make money, the product is super meaningful to her. And that's really important. So I'm going to leave the other details out because she is going to get into something with food. And suffice it to say, she's been talking about this for a few weeks. This week she called. She said she's made progress hatching this initial plan. And what she's decided to do is start a sourdough business. So, Lou, since you and I are in such different worlds, I'm I'm actually interested to know this myself. Are you aware that sourdough bread should be, I don't know, on the official seal of the year 2020? You know, I I don't know if I I get that because <laughs> I I don't really do sourdough bread. Oh my god, I knew it. That's unbelievable to me. I mean, dude, the algorithm keeps us in totally different lanes. Sourdough was basically like the <laughs> manna of 2020. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> All I could think about is like those cartoons when I was younger uh, uh, shows. Hey kid, you need some sourdough. <laughs> Like they're pushing flour and McGruff, the crime dog would tell you not to touch it. Yeah, but like, listen, in all seriousness, this was a complete craze. There was a run on all the flour in the grocery stores. Wait a second. A run? Like a bank run? Like a bank run. I mean, I can't even make this up. If you tried to order flour online, there was a wait list for weeks and weeks. I went so far as to order it like from a mill in North Carolina, and I had to pay like $50 just for shipping. And then I ordered it from Amazon later in the year, and I had this, I don't know, this order got swapped, I guess because everyone's mailing flour all over the place. And no exaggeration, <laughs> I easily have 150 pounds of flour in this house right now. <laughs> Psst. I got some black market flour. You interested? <laughs> oh my God! Right, listen, sourdough. <laughs> I'm gonna I, let me just give you the lowdown. First of all, it is a real pain in the ass to make. All the special supplies that you'd need to make it, those were all back ordered too. I cannot understate what a phenomenon sourdough was for all of the foodie women in America, myself included. Okay, so back to my friend. She says. I've decided that I'm going to get in on sourdough. Now, look, I'm a completely super supportive friend that owns a business. Of course, I am going to go gangbusters with enthusiasm about her interest in starting a business. Like, yes, be creative. Yes, do it. I do not want to say anything to deter her or, like, God forbid, derail her, right? So you have to be a really optimistic person to get into business at all. It's just the nature of the beast, right? If you're considering starting a business, you have faith in yourself. Like, Lou, you're an optimistic guy. When it comes down to it, you have confidence that you can make whatever it is that you want to go, go, right? Uh, I can make sourdough tomorrow. 
Right. Okay. I was I was talking more about like advertising campaigns, but yeah, I'm sure you'd be a phenomenal baker. <laughs> but I guess you kind of prove the point here, right? There's something endemic to the to the mindset of being at least willing to get into the business world, even if it's not intuitive to you. You have to be someone who has this optimism and positivity in order to stomach that kind of risk. And as soon as you inhabit that mental space, you get into this danger zone, like the psychology, like the woman who was selling the fake paintings in New York. However, there is something especially seductive about the ways of thinking about the food business for American women that it's just, it's sketchy, right? And it is all thanks to the one and only Ms. Martha Stewart, okay? So... Earlier in the year, I was reading a new book out by Joan Didion. Oh, the the Van- Vanity Fair lady. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Vanity Fair lady. Of course, you know who she is. Uh, Luke, Joan Didion is like the Serena Williams of essayists. <laughs> I can't even pretend. You told you told you told me beforehand in more inside baseball oh that you're going to tell a story about a woman who was a writer for Vanity Fair, uh... and that's why I just chimed in. I have no clue who she is. Yeah. I think you're thinking of Vogue, but Leo, it was a valiant effort on your part. I couldn't even pull, Elizabeth, I couldn't even pull that off, uh, like just for fun, because it was just so ridiculous. Yeah, I felt like I had to barrel through it for you, though. I mean, I am am on your team, man. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. So Joan Didion wrote this brilliant essay called Who is Martha Stewart for The New Yorker 20 years ago about what Martha Stewart did to the American woman's ability to make money off of food, right? And so this was already like a 20-year retrospective about that. And look, again, I totally believe you can. In fact, in the 80s, my mother ran a wildly successful food-based business out of our home. But we cannot discount Martha's influence on women even now and how she's inevitably going to influence decisions on our that our listeners are currently making. Martha's thinking is as ubiquitous as a loaf of sourdough in 2020, okay? So in this essay, Joan Didion, who is like the archetypal old guard California intellectual writer type, you know, like smoking cigarettes and being fabulous, she refers to what Martha ultimately taught women. I'm just going to read it to it. She, read it to you. She, it was, she said it was a way of getting out of the house with a vengeance and on your own terms, right? This is food. The secret dream of any woman who has ever made a success of a PTA cake sale, right? So there it is, right? We've been hearing about this for decades. She even says, like, she quotes the neighbors, right? Like, you could bottle that chili sauce, neighbors say to home cooks all over America. You could make a fortune on those date bars. And then this was the real kicker for me. Finally, she says, I myself believed that for most of my adult life that I could support myself and my family in the catastrophic absence of all other income sources by catering. Look, this, Lou, this is as ludicrous an idea as if Ruth Bader Ginsburg told you she'd always assume that if things didn't work out up at the court that she could fall back on catering, right? Like, really, you're going to make <laughs> obsessive hors d'oeuvres for 300 people on a weekly basis? Like, this is crazy, right? But... You know when Martha got big? In the 80s. And while women may be far more educated as a group right now than they were then, their profile in the workforce is suddenly the same as it was right when Martha came out with the siren song of, like, fame and fortune through food. So, back to my friend. We're having this conversation about the sourdough, and I say, look, 
I think this is a little bit of a risk because, you know, there's so many people that already that are eating sourdough, so many people who have 150 pounds of flour in the house, you know, but even that's kind of neither here nor there. What I said to her that I've never said to anybody else in this kind of situation was, I completely support you. I'm totally excited about your success. I have no intention of becoming your customer. Ooh. That's pretty That's pretty straightforward, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. That's tough love. Well, I mean, there's a reason they call me the sledgehammer, you know. But again, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to punish her or stick it to her. <laughs> what? You're a, that's kind of ratty. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm telling you. I said this to her because most people don't say this. I was trying to offer her a data point, right? And this woman knows me well enough to know that I have zero interest in knocking her down so I could trust her to know that I wasn't just trying to be a bitch, right? But this is such a thing. When you tell people that you're stepping out on your own because everyone just loves that angel food cake you make or, or whatever it is, they say, oh, my God, we're so excited for you. We really want you to get out there. You should do it. Because that's kind, right? And it's genuinely meant to be encouraging. And then the optimistic future business starter, especially that food business starter in America who cannot help but be influenced by Martha Stewart, is inclined to think all these enthusiastic friends are going to become my customers. And because that's what you really want to be the truth, you really believe it just like the woman in New York who was selling the fake paintings and ignoring any whiff of information that might disprove their authenticity. But... I don't think all those people who are saying, yes, start a business, are also allocating money in the budget for a weekly order of angel food cake, but they're never going to say that. So she asked me why I wasn't going to buy, right? She obviously sounded shocked, like, what? And I said, well, first of all, I have all this flour downstairs in the pantry. I have everything that I need to make what you're offering to sell. Plus, I know what you're going to have to charge me in order to make it worthwhile for you to make this bread for me. Like, you're going to have to charge me 18 bucks a loaf or something obscene like that. I don't know if I'm going to give you $18 a loaf to subscribe to a bread subscription. And that actually brings us to what we're going to talk about today. Because she actually has two choices, right? The easy thing to do is capitulate and say, well, maybe Elizabeth said she isn't going to buy my bread, so maybe I shouldn't sell bread, right? So one thing she can do is just change the offering to not get in on the sourdough bandwagon. Right, but you could be wrong. Yes, and that's the point. The second opportunity she has is to convince me that I actually don't know what I want or need. So that's what we're going to talk about today, is this phenomenon of customers thinking they know what they want or need, and then how you sell to them or how you build your business when that's the case. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to look at it and give you a friend different advice, honestly, because if people were making uh, sourdough bread all during 2021, they might be sick of making it. They just want to eat it. So if you make it nice and easy and, and you bring it to the house and it's nice and toasty and warm and it's the right price point, maybe you don't make make it and maybe you do buy a product. Maybe. Maybe. But maybe maybe it's just uh, not the right product as well. I, well I don't, it's kind of neither. A, yeah, it's neither. You're not a sourdough salesman. I'm not a sourdough guy, but... Uh, just like we were talking about the last show, it's it's you 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 think all your clients are coming with you and they don't, and here's the same thing: you think all your friends are going to buy your product and they don't, so you can't take it as a given. But it's funny, uh, Elizabeth, that I notice it all the time, and I noticed it a lot in sports. 
uh-huh. all the time. We had the client because they understood their business and they understood uh-huh. uh, their brand. They thought they could market it <laughs> and they thought they could uh, put all the plans together to make sh- to, to get them what they needed to bring in customers. And mm. and so this is this is on um, you say customers and and you may be thinking of a, on a B to C level, but right. I'm talking on a B to B level. Yes, where let me tell you a little story. People call me and they ask for advice. So I have this company call me up. And I'm not going to mention the name of the company because it's really irrelevant to the story. And I'm not going to mention the name of the people because, like you said, we're not here to bash people. But this company, let's just say they're selling CBD. Uh. And they, they, want, they want to hire somebody to be a spokesperson. And so I said to them, well, who do you have in mind? And they mentioned this sports figure who was a star in the 1980s. Mike Schmidt. <laughs> you know, his era. Right, right. <laughs> it's not Mike Schmidt, but in his era. And I'm like, okay, but let me ask you a question. What does this player have to do with CBD? And why would people trust him to buy the CBD? And they said, well, no, he knows nothing about CBD, but, you know, I know Charlie who knows Joe, who knows Paul, who knows him. So I can get him. And, and so I'm saying, I'm, I said, that's not how you pick somebody who endorses your product. You, you have to build what I call a sponsorship or endorsement filter. You understand the goals and characteristics of you, what you want to accomplish, uh-huh. and you list it all down. You know, you know all the characteristics, and you know, I, I need the guy to be, or the, the lady to be this. They have to have this many followers. You know, not unlike what, when you were writing a book, right? There's a little whole little uh, uh, package you put together to tell yeah. people how you can help sell the book. So you want to know everything about the person endorsing it. Like, ha- have they ever been arrested for for drugs or or, or anything? Mm-hmm. And, and you want to make sure it's the right person. So. We, at when I was at Trinity One, would build these filters all the time for people because they had no idea how to pick. So a, wait a minute. A, so you were actually, you would put together kind of like a dossier of, uh, or, you know, like a like a profile that was actually all written out of like, here's the kind of person we're looking for, and you'd share it with the client? Yeah. So that's, cool. exa- that's exactly what we do. We built, we, I used to call it a, a, a sponsorship filter. What you do is you basically take the person, you put them through this, filter or answering the questions up against the filter and then at, mm-hmm. when you come to the other end if you're 90 if he's 90 percent uh, compatible then the likelihood is a good choice if he's 20 percent compatible it's probably a bad choice oh, oh you, it's you, like you're it's like you're building like a silhouette you know when you trace somebody's profile and then you end up putting uh, somebody a face in behind it and see exactly if they fit right. that's exactly right you want to make sure that the person you're hiring is the right person for the brand, and it's a very, it's a very um, dangerous prop, uh, prep, proposition because for who? just look just for the for the person spending money for the endorsement. Look what just happened during the Super Bowl with what you had Bruce Spring, Springsteen was oh, doing ads right. for cars, and then a week later they're talking about his DUI. Oh, that's right. So so it's and, and it all kind of washed out, right? But at the end of the day. You want to. You, you got to do a little bit of research, mm-hmm. a little background. You got to make sure there's the right fit. Yeah. And so this 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 company is saying to me, they want this guy who is first of all, 
it, 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 I almost should say who the athlete is because it is absolutely the wrong. <laughs> this, this, the, the CBD was upscale, luxurious, and, and uh, you know they were selling it as the high end brand, and, and this guy was a, <laughs> was just the wrong guy. It was. It's kind of like saying, um, like it's it's like me being uh, the spokesperson for. Uh, for Chanel, <laughs> or, or, or the spokesperson for sourdough bread, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So, so when you talk about customers not knowing what what they want, yeah. this is the case. You know what happens normally? <laughs> we we get they get mad at you. Yeah, because they're embarrassed. Right? They get mad at you. Well, what do you. You don't know what you're talking about. What, what, what do you mean? Yeah. I'm happy that your friend didn't get mad at you and she was very adult, but it, it, it's, it could happen very easily. Be- well, I, I mean, I used, a, I, as I said at the beginning of that story, I'd never said that to anybody else before. And that's because she knew I wasn't throwing middle fingers at her saying, I'm not buying from you. I wanted her to hear, like, I'm saying all of this stuff and I'm going to be so quick as to be like, but I'm not on, you know, because it, ha- because it happens all the time. Like, I'm always interested in the psychology and like sorting out what's really going on because that's actually really helpful. Anyway, go back. Keep going. Well, it's basically the story. I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, you try to help your clients mm-hmm. in, in, in customers. The customer is the CBD company in this particular case, but they don't want to hear it. They think they've already made the right decision. They are asking you for, for clearance, right? They, they want, they want mm-hmm. that Oh yeah, that's that's good. That's good. They want that acknowledgement, that that verification. You know what I and, find? Let me ask you about what your philosophy is on this. So, I kind of have my own. It's sort of a, a my way or the highway thing with my customers, um, and they I I built my brand on trustworthiness. Right. Like my authority, you can trust. So uh, and that's actually when I started being successful is when I realized, oh, you know what? People don't know. They don't know what game they're playing and they don't know at no fault of their own. They don't know what they actually need from me. I'm going to bring them into that arena and then show them how I can be helpful. Most of the time, if I can't bring someone into that arena, I generally I mean, obviously, don't close that, right? But also, most of the time, I'll try to steer somebody else or be like, I don't know if I'm going to make you happy if you're going to insist that what you really want is ABC when what I do is X, Y, and Z. And so I actually try to not even get in those relationships, like those business relationships in the first place. What do you do with that? Because you're in a different, you're in a different thing where everybody thinks they know everything. Yeah, it's it can be tough at times. And, and I try to be uh, tolerant and patient when it comes to the ideas of some clients because it, it really is and when you're in marketing a collaboration is definitely the way to do things uh-huh. but there's times when there's just absolute nonsense coming out of people's mouths and and and, and, and I you know me I'm pretty I'm pretty straightforward and blunt and I, I tell them uh-huh. I'm like it's not going to work I mean you're, you're spinning your wheels and I'm not going to do it because it's going to fail and you're going to say it was my fault but you know Right. It's just got to be so much harder for you because you're kind of more of an arbiter of cool. I'm more of an arbiter of nerdiness, you know, so people aren't people aren't as hung up on agreeing with me in the first place. Well, you, Everything you're doing is just so much more rock and roll. It used to happen all the time and with sponsorship deals. And, and this is throughout my career, not not 
just in radio and television, the Patriots, Trinity One. And when it comes to sponsorships in general, mm-hmm. people really don't know what they want. They they mm-hmm. they think they might might want something, and they look at the the shiny thing, the shiny new thing. Like, you know, I need to have signage. Okay, well, why do you need to have signage? <laughs> I love that. That's the shiny yeah, new well, thing. <laughs> well, for them, it's the shiny. New. First of all, I'm gonna need a sign. <laughs> no, this this it's a shiny new thing for them. And I, I'm not talking about a sign on their building. <laughs> I'm talking about when you go into a sporting event or in a in a uh, arena. <laughs> You have a sign in the arena. Right, they want in the, the arena. Sponsorship, okay, right? okay. So, sorry, I, if I didn't clarify. We, re- we are not in the same lanes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm not talking about your kid painting a sign and putting it on the, on the doorway. Daddy has a new job. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sponsorship, sponsorship signage, signage and digital right. board signage. Right. So when people buy sponsorship oh, in general, yeah. they're looking for something that you know is ego-driven. Right. And that ego-driven piece isn't always necessarily what's going to get the job done for them. Uh, take NASCAR, for example. Okay. NASCAR's big money-making, I'm not going to say scheme, but, but uh, their money-making, uh, revenue-generating uh, piece of their business is selling the hoods of the car and pieces of the car, right? Really? You're familiar with NASCAR, right? I mean, I know what NASCAR is, but I didn't know that. Yeah, so so if you take the hood of a car and Oh you... <laughs> no, I'm just being an idiot. I thought you <laughs> when, when, Oh, you think they were actually selling the pieces of the car? <laughs> we are way off base today. Well, you know that you know that book Men are from Mars just, and, and Women are from I just Venus? Fell on the floor. <laughs> right? Right now you're from Pluto and I'm from <laughs> the sun. <laughs> So they oh they, they sell signage, Elizabeth, on the hood of a car. <laughs> they sell signage. Okay, let me try this again. They sell signage. Uh, uh, their logos go on the hood of a car. Now, you know, are you familiar with that car even a little bit? Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, I've been to a race. I think <laughs> it's pretty loud. It's pretty loud, but it's fun. It is. So you so the, the major way that race car teams make money yeah. is that they sell the hood of the car. Now I'm thinking about a guy unscrewing and saying, by the, by the hood. That's so stupid. I hate that we have to air that because it's so dumb. But it is funny. You, you, can't, you can't edit this out because it's just too, it's gold, right? Because oh my you're thinking that actually, now I'm, I'm getting it totally. They're actually unscrewing the hood of the car and someone's buying it and taking it home, right? <laughs> I, I, I actually, you know, here's the thing, Elizabeth. I bet you they could make money doing that too for fans. Of right, course right. they could. That's it. you know, somebody we're gonna call over there at the end of the episode and tell them we have an idea. Oh, hey, my God. Elizabeth would like to have the hood of your car. She wants to hang it up in her studio. Right. That's what I thought. Oh dear. Oh gosh. So it's not the selling the actual hood of the car, Elizabeth. Here's what I mean. These companies like to buy the hood of the car to put their logo on. So when the NASCARs are driving around the track, everybody sees it. And so, you know, the big companies like Budweiser and, and DuPont and um, M&M Mars, you know, they have plenty of dough. So, you know, they can afford to spend 
$25 million a year on the hood of a car. Is that and what it costs? It, yeah, a, it's probably, it might even be a little bit more. That's when, when we were doing doing sales for uh, Richard Children's Racing in, in Fraternity One, that's where the number was, 25 to $27 wow. million. Uh, and that was, well, 10 years ago, so it probably is more. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day, there's these other sponsors who say, wow, NASCAR fans are my fans, and I want to buy the hood of a car. But what happens is their whole budget is $25 million. So after right. they put the, the logo on the hood of the car, they can't afford anything else. And that's a big problem because the real value in the sponsorship is the activation. It's great for visibility, and you got a Bud Light going around circles and circles and circles and circles and circles and circles. And people identify fans and consumers identify with it, but it's mm-hmm. the consumer engagement where you have endial displays with your product, you have contests, you, you, you have meet and greets with players. There's all this laundry list of other things that are much more important when it comes to your marketing budget. And, it, and so they'll, they'll spend their entire budget on the roof of a car, a hood of a car, and yeah. there's no activation. And it should be at least three times the price of the hood that you spend in activation. So if that you don't sense. have a $100 million budget, you have no, no, no right to buy the hood of a car because you're not yeah. going to get the bang for the buck. And so customers, though, they'll say, no, I want the, I want the hood. I want, a, I want the big sign. I, I want the big ego buy. And, then, and they're missing the entire point when it comes to the whole fact that you want to do marketing and advertising. Sure, you want to build a brand, but ultimately it's about driving revenues and and for for many companies, the hood alone won't do that. What do you think is the small scale uh, version of this? I mean, I immediately I'm thinking, you know, the local hardware store sponsors the T ball league or the Petticoat League, right? So they still call it that. There's my Gen X. <laughs> I played Petticoat softball. Um, is is there like a obviously they're not blowing the bank on the you know sponsoring the the t-ball team or what have you but like what's the is there kind of a smaller scale version of that that somebody that's sort of in my shoes a mistake that's similar to that that I might make so if you you sponsor a, a, a local event and the local event they just giving you signage and you're not getting anything else with it there's not the value in it that you you think they would be you'd think oh great there's so many people that come in but it's really for the branding and the funny thing about events in general one day events or weekend events they go away and so right. imagine spending all that money for one weekend so it's very right. concentrated on where your your advertising should be spent and and you really should spread it out through the course of the year right okay the brand awareness is what drives the decision, and then the timing, and then the percent of your marketing budget, if you have one at all, about that about that decision. So I'm saying, oh, you know, like the T-Ball League might actually be a nice idea because it's not one game, right? But there, I think it's more like, you know where I found it is when I started to be successful, and it was, will you please donate to this auction? Or we'll put your sign, you know, wherever, at, the, at these one-time events, that is the ego thing that you're talking about, right? The only thing I really got out of it was being able to say that I sponsored something. Yeah, it's, and that, that's the example, right? The example is you, you take budget, you put it on something that's a one-and-done, 
and it really doesn't do anything for your marketing, but it is the eagle play. Hey, I did this. I was involved in this. Right. Or we sponsored a table at whatever event, right? But if it's if it's 90%, if it's 90% of the money that I'm going to spend that year and I throw it, even if it's at, at a charity event, it's still probably stupid. But in the moment, it's a heartstrings thing and an ego thing to say, yeah, my, you know, my company bought a table because that's it's what we all kind of want to aspire to. Yeah, and I don't want to get into the depths of of the proper way to do sports marketing or buying sponsorship because that's not what this is about. But it's it, yeah. it goes back to what you were talking about, where customers don't really know what they want, and right. it really is your job as a company. And and, and again, we're in a B two B situation that we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. but you you're there to guide the customer to the proper way to utilize their marketing budget in that particular example. But it, it, it doesn't have to be just business to business. It could be business to consumer. And, mm-hmm. and your job as a company is to really explain why whatever service or product you have is going to make the con- consumer's life better, mm-hmm. more enjoyable, happier, mm-hmm. easier, or whatever the purpose of your product is. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes consumers don't get it. Right. What a way to end that. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes you just can't. (laughs) Okay, Lou. So we were talking about, I I mean, we went in today (laughs) thinking about how we were going to talk about customers not always knowing what they want, right? So I want to make sure that as we're telling people, hey, not everyone's communicating with you about what they want or what the best way for you to spend your money is – do you have a story of a time in which you actually successfully helped people figure out, like, oh, they thought the customer wanted this, but in fact it was that? Or can you list some stuff that you thought people should really be thinking about A, B, and C? You got something like that? Yeah, so it happens all the time, actually. You know, I've given examples, you've given examples. But quite often, the reason why they come to me in our group is because they realize they don't know what they want. And so I think it's it's all about listening to the clients, understanding what their goals are, and saying to them, okay, I understand you think you should be going in this direction, but why don't we stop thinking about tactics and let's talk about what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's it's guiding people, right? It's it's this is your this is your world, right? Right? People have preconceived notions when it comes to learning in in math and in in English and writing and all the things that that they think they know. But you spend a lot of time really correcting their direction so they can do it better. Is that not true? I mean, I spend a lot of time demystifying what people are getting into so that they can understand that my solution is the right solution and that it's going to work for them. Um, Oddly enough, people come to me and think that what they really need is strategy, right? And loopholes and workarounds. And I don't do that at all. I'm like, I I think you're scaring the hell out of yourself. I'm just going to teach you the stuff that's on the test. I know it's really too bad that you didn't learn it in high school for whatever reason, but you probably just don't know it. So let's start with making sure that you know everything on the test and then we'll go from there. That usually covers 90% of the problem. Um, but so for me, it took a little while to, to have the a nerve to pipe up and say, you know what, I know that you hear in the popular conversation around around this that 
that you need all of this, you know, extra sexy frosting on all of the work that we're doing. But really, unfortunately, it's just not that sexy. But I'm going to get you there with this thing that's particularly not sexy. So I'm thinking about my friend, you know, people, that's that's a conversation that I've arrived at with parents after 15 or 20 years of experience. That's a lot of time having that conversation to be comfortable having that conversation and steering people in that direction. What about somebody who's who's a teacher or an artist who's going to sell bread, right? My goal is that I'm going to start selling bread. What do, what do you think are the big things that the the questions that that person needs to be asking or the things that that person needs to be listening for because the way that you sell bread in real life is not how it happens in the movies, right? Is there like a can we do like the one, two, three, listen for this? You know, I, I actually said, I said to my friend, has anyone offered to give you any money for this bread? And she said, the neighbor swapped beer with me. <laughs> hey, it. trade. We were talking about that. Like, trade, hey, trade, trade yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Which to me says, oh, she heard, she heard that the, that it's valuable and it is right. But that's different than having these kind of awkward conversations with people like, what would you pay for this? So we have two things going on, Elizabeth, because I, I want to just go back real quickly to you, you talking about what you did and the demystification of the process. And, and that's mm-hmm. how I see when people have preconceived notions on how things should be done, it's up to the advisors, the consultants, the experts to demystify what they have in their mind is is the magic wand. People will come and say, well, if I do this, I'm going to make a million dollars. But there's no magic wand in anything. So it's important to, if you're the expert and you're the consultant, you, you really have to bring them down to earth. And and like you do and say, you know, it's there's no magic wand here. you got to put the work in. Right. And ostensibly, that's what we're doing for the people that are listening that's, to us that's right, right now. That's right. So going back to your friend, I, I think... It, it's not dissimilar. You have to say to her, well, before you just assume that your bread's going to sell, you probably should do a little market research and find out how many people in the world eat sourdough bread and where do they get their sourdough bread from? And is there an ample amount of sourdough bread? And and if there is, what regions is it better in and what regions is it terrible in? I have a company that we own, it's called Ocean's Table. Ocean's uh-huh. Table is a, uh, from the ocean to your table uh, in 24 hours. Fresh fish, it no is, frozen. It is good right? fish. It's good fish, yeah. So so it's it's not dissimilar than, you know, sourdough bread fish, what's, you know, it's, it's, it's a product that people eat. And she wants to do a sure. subscription-based service, it sounds like, or a monthly uh-huh. thing. That's what we do. And, and right. we, when we opened the company, and the only reason why I mention it is we did a lot of research, and there's a uh-huh. lot of people in the Midwest who cannot get fresh fish. It makes sense, right? That makes total sense. So we're thinking, wow, we got a home run. We are partners with a guy in Gloucester who owns the auction. We get all the fish we want at the best price. So now we can buy the fish and ship it to the Midwest, and people now are going to have the best surf and turf they ever had because they already have the beef, and now they want the fish. Well, in theory, it sounds amazing. Uh-huh. But as we started advertising and people started buying the fish further away from the coast, we had a, go- we had a shift from ground delivery to air delivery. 
Mm-hmm. And we had to do that because the whole idea is it's fresh fish. And, and <laughs> right? Because it's literally central to what we're trying to do. Right? It's fresh fish. So you can, like, if, if you're in so Gloucester. So it's got to be fresh. It's right? got to be fish and it has to be fresh. Right. So that means it's never frozen. So, right. So if you're going to do that for the Midwest, you can't have a truck drive it. You've got to put it on an airplane. And what happens when you put mm-hmm. it on an airplane? It costs a lot more money. And we thought because if we spread it between ground and air, there'd be a balance and we'd be able to average, cost average outright price. Uh... Well, it didn't happen because more people from far away were buying it. So, so what was happening is we were shipping it farther away and it was yeah. costing us two and a half times the delivery. So right. the margins were gone and eaten and, and, and didn't work. And so we now still have Ocean's Table, but we do it. It's a smaller uh, footprint. And, mm-hmm. and we do everything in New England, which is fine, it's, but it's not where we started. We wanted to, because right. again, Midwest, that's brilliant. So your, course, sourdough, brilliant. your sourdough yeah. friend could fall into the trap that we did. It could be sure. a great idea in theory. But in practice, it just doesn't make any sense because your your friends aren't buying it. All these different reasons that she has to look into. And it can't be just because, hey, I make good sourdough bread, so people are going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a perfect example. That's interesting. Huh. I should put you on the spot more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Elizabeth, you know, we've we've had a bunch of stories, some that are small business, some that are big, huge business, some sports, B2B, B2C. Um, you're brilliant. Dissect what we talked about and tell me, what are your takeaways? Well, thanks, Lou. It, especially in light of that whole NASCAR debacle, I am touched that you would still use the B word for me right now. So yeah, let me get into it. Let me give you the takeaways. One. Be vigilant if your next steps are in the small home-based food business. It works for plenty of people, but running a food business is nothing like what Martha Stewart made it look like you have to do your research. Two, take the enthusiasm about that business from your friends. Take it seriously because they want you to succeed, but don't expect that that means that they're going to become reliable customers, even if they've told you for 20 years that you make the best chocolate tort they've ever had. Three, retrofit your sponsorship personality profiles to what you need and what you need to convey. Don't just think of the most famous person that you have a connection to, which is very tempting, but we can get a relatively famous person does not a marketing campaign make. Four, the same goes for small-scale sponsorships. If you have a small budget, if you are a smaller company like I am, don't blow the bank on an effort that's only going to be visible for one event or for a weekend, even if it's alluring to say you want to be able to say you did it. And five, finally, NASCAR, if you're listening and you're looking for a new CMO, I am available. (laughs) 
Man, you redeemed yourself. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, that debacle with the NASCAR really wasn't a debacle. It was kind of funny because it, 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 it would be it would have been a debacle if if it wasn't so sweet and genuine. Aww. But you absolutely redeemed yourself. Those are amazing points, and you know people should really pay attention to it because you know, you're brilliant. I'm brilliant, and, and they might be brilliant, but they just need to be shown the way. That's nice and generous. Well, Lou, I hope you have a great week. You know, I hope you do too, and I'll be talking to you soon, so ciao for now. Hey, ciao for now. The King and Lou is a production of Elizabeth King Coaching and IE International. Special thanks to Red Smudgeon and Emily Monroe, and extra special thanks to our sound engineer, Michael Weissman, for not only editing this show, but also writing and performing our theme music. If you have a question you'd like us to discuss on the show, send it in a voice memo to questions at thekingandlou.com. Thanks so much for listening. Ciao for now.